Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. My guest today is Britt Bennett. She's the author of The Mothers and her newest book, an instant New York Times number one bestseller is The Vanishing Half. We talk today about releasing a book amid a pandemic and a civil rights movement, researching a novel, and of course, Britt's favorite books. Before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters, aka the Stacks Pack. These are the people who have committed to a monthly contribution to the Stacks that allows me to make this show week in and week out. In exchange for their generosity, they earn perks like our virtual book club and more. Thank you to the following people who make this entire podcast possible. I am so, so, so grateful to all of you. Morgan Banning, Bonnie McGee, Rebecca Zoller, Stephanie Whitmore, Emma Agrarian, Mary, Laura, Katie Caustic, Jordan Moblo, and Michelle Vaughn. All right, now let's get to my conversation with author Britt Bennett. All right, you guys, I'm so excited. I'm here today with Britt Bennett. Britt, welcome to The Stacks. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, this is so exciting. I've been a big fan of yours since before The Stacks even existed when The Mothers (laughs) came out. So this is a very special moment. I always love that. Um, We're going to start where we always start, which is basically just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you're from, maybe how you came to writing, whatever you think is relevant. Sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm from San Diego County from Oceanside, which is where The Mothers is set, my first book. And really, I just came to writing as a as a pretty young kid. I, I you know, I, I, I feel like it's kind of the standard writer origin story or like I grew up you know, as a reader and I went to the library. Um, but my mom was really the person in the family who was the big reader. And she was the one who, who kind of turned me into a reader. Um, and I always just when I was in elementary school, I wanted to write. So I would, I would write these little short stories on the family computer or I remember I wrote a play one time. So I had from a very young age had been really fascinated by the idea of storytelling and and the idea of myself becoming a storyteller. That's so interesting that you say this is, you know, like the normal or like the regular everyday (laughs) writer story, because I talk a lot to a lot of writers and everyone's different. I don't feel like that's common at all. I don't, I think some people come to it from a really young age and then some people are like, I didn't even know you could be a writer. Like (laughs) I didn't even know that was a job. I think, yeah, I I, know. I I mean, I think that that's true. I, I think, I guess for myself, you know, I, I also did not really imagine people like writers as people who are alive, you know, <laughs> like I always, 
I, I grew up as a reader, but I didn't know any writers until I probably got to college. Um, so I had never been to a reading. I had never, I mean, I read some contemporary writers, but thinking about like the reading you do for school, which is mostly dead people. Right. And then, uh, and then be- going to college where I not only met uh, contemporary writers, but I met young writers. And that was something that I think was really kind of mind expanding for me of meeting these like, you know, writers in their twenties and thirties who were doing really exciting work that was different than the people that you, I read in high school. Right. When you went to college, did you study writing in undergrad as well? I eventually did. Um, I thought I was going to be a lawyer at first because oh. that was what my, my parents really wanted me to do. Um, and you know, I, I really thought, okay, this is going to be the path I'll do. And maybe I'll just like write on the side. Um, but then, you know, when I got to college, I ended up, uh, sort of meeting a mentor who was just like, you don't want to do that. You want to do something else. What's the other thing that you want to do? And I had to kind of finally admit to myself that I really did want to be a writer, even though it felt like there was no path available for me to do that. Um, so I was able to, once I was an undergrad, I was able to finally, uh, sort of commit to taking writing classes for the first time, had never taken a writing class before. Um, so I did that and, and also found these mentors, these young writers who really were so kind and took me under their wing and, and were very generous towards me when I was um, a very young and insecure <laughs> writer right. who was trying to figure out her way. Right. That's so interesting that you brought up writing classes because I have, you know, I prepare questions to talk to people because I like to be prepared and I'm a psycho like that. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which I think kind of fits into that, is that I- I'm not a writer. I don't write. I only read. So one of the things I'm curious about writing is how do you get better? Because I read The Mothers and I loved The Mothers. And then I read The Vanishing Half and I love The Vanishing Half. And the books are different. And I actually don't know that one is necessarily better than the other, but it's different. And you've changed as a writer for sure in the time between the books. So is that just life experience changing or is that you doing some sort of work on your writing or something that you've learned quantifiable do you know what I mean that's kind of a weird question yeah I don't know that I've ever been asked that question before um you know I think I think it it depends so for me like when I was in college again I had never taken a writing class I had no sense of craft I just had you know work that I was writing I would be writing at home and I didn't really have anyone who was reading and giving me feedback it was truly just myself kind of sitting down and, and and in that way I think I was not really getting better um I think that I was kind of making the same mistakes and, and running up against sort of the end of myself because I had no real sort of guidance or help in that way. So I think one thing is, is finding people who are readers. Like I love when you said that you are not a writer and you're a reader. Like I, sometimes people say that with like apologetically and I'm always sure. just like, no, do not apologize for it. <laughs> we, the world needs readers, you know, right. we, we need readers and particularly readers who are, who, you know, are just interested in reading. That's, that's so so I think finding readers, finding people who are going to give you honest feedback, I think that's one way that you get better. Reading um, is the big way that you get better. Um, and I think for myself, between those two books, um, you know, I, I do think my writing has changed. And I think part of it is life experience, getting older, experiencing new things. But I think another part of it is just, yeah, it's it's the other books that I had read in the meantime, the things I've been exposed to. Um, the things I had been thinking about, I think that that's the difficult thing of writing a book because, you know, there's change between the mothers and the vanishing half. And then there's also all the micro ways that I had changed from when I started writing the vanishing half 
to when The Vanishing Half came out. Right. So I think that there's constantly sort of trying to reconcile all those different people that you have been while you were working on that book. And that's something that I think leads to the book improving. And, and But it's also something that makes it difficult to write a book that feels coherent because I have not been a coherent person as I was writing the book. Sure. How long did it take you to write The Vanishing Half? It took me probably about four or five years from kind of first conception to, to when I turned in the last draft. Right. And so all the things that you've been consuming in those four to five years or that you did consume in those four to five years, plus I'm sure now that the book's out, it's been another year or so. Have you read back any of The Vanishing Half? No, not since it's been out. Um, the last time I read it was late last year before, as we were doing like copy edits and everything. Mm. So I read it from start to finish and it really did feel like startling I'm like oh this is the book um because I've been thinking about it so much as like the little pieces that you're trying to put together you're not really thinking about it as a whole I think when you're working on a book at least I'm not um so to see it as one complete thing was very surprising and I felt in a way as if a different person had written it that's so interesting okay I we have to talk about twins because the vanishing half, but I'm a twin mom now. I have identical oh. twin boys oh. and they, and my husband's white. And so they're very fair skin. <laughs> so I'm like, kind. I mean, we're not going to do any spoilers on the vanishing half or the mothers, everybody. So we won't ruin anything. But the premise of the book is that these two twin sister girl, two girl twin sisters um, are inseparable from a young age. And then they leave town together and then they separate. And one of them passes for white. If you don't know what that means, just Google it, please. I don't have the energy. Um, but I was tripping out reading this book because I'm like, oh, my God, I hope my babies don't leave me. And then, like, also leave each other. Like, if they're going to leave me, like, stay together. Um, but I have to know how you wrote about twins because you're not a twin. No, I'm not. Um, yeah, I, I I think a lot of it I'm, – I'm not a twin. I have two older sisters. I have one sister who – is 10 years older than me and I was just two years older than me. Okay. So I had different experiences of siblingness because of that. Like my sister who's 10 years older is often quite maternal towards me. And that's like a different vibe. And then my sister who's two years older, we were like at school at the same time and we right. had some friend overlap. So it was a little bit slightly more twin experience, I think because of the closeness in age. Um, so some of that, I think some of the ways in which I was writing that twin relationship was just thinking about my relationship with my sisters um, and and trying to kind of push that further to imagine the twinness. Um, because to me, what was interesting about the relationship between those two sisters is just the idea of this relationship that is both um, sort of claustrophobically close. <laughs> it's so close that they kind of want to escape from each other and that feeling of just needing to get away and try to feel like a separate person, but also this fear that you cannot survive without that person and being caught in that kind of push and pull of that dynamic. Um, and that's something, you know, I very close to my sisters. So I have felt that feeling sometimes of the claustrophobia of the bond and also the fear of escaping the bond. Um, but wanting to kind of magnify that, to think about these twins. So some of it was just me kind of projecting from my own sibling relationships. Um, I did a little bit of twin reading, but I actually like, I'm, I did not know a lot about, you know, like twin estrangement as like a psychological concept. Right. <laughs> so that is something that I have been like, people have, I've, I've heard from psychologists about this um, after the book has come out. Um, so I can't even say, Oh, I did a lot of research on that, the psychology of that. It, it really wasn't, 
that type of the project for me, for me, it was mostly just thinking about my tight relationship with my sisters and also imagining, okay, what would it take for me to escape that relationship and be willing to walk away from that relationship? And that was the difficult thing to imagine, but that's also what made the book have emotional stakes for me. Wow. That's so interesting. Do you do a lot of research in general for your writing or are you kind of a writer that's not as into the research? I know there's kind of two schools of thought on that for fiction writers. I think I'm somewhere in between. Um, like the mothers, I I remember researching a little bit actually for the mothers. Um, I think mostly for the mothers, it was kind of the experiences of men uh, with abortion. Um, um, because that was something that I had never thought about. Like, what would a man be feeling in this moment right. um, that I had just never thought about as a woman? Um, so that that was something that that I that I did research um, for the vanishing half. There was there was a degree of research as far as racial passing and the history of that. Um, as far as these types of towns that I was writing about, these very light skinned creole communities and sort of colorism within those specific communities within Louisiana, that was something that I researched. Um, so sometimes there are elements like that, but I do think that I'm not, um, I'm not somebody who gets really hung up on the research, you know, like I, I, I'm thinking about like the book beach by Jennifer Egan, mm. um, which I enjoyed a lot, but which is so meticulously researched that you feel like this woman knows everything about scuba diving during world war two. <laughs> right. And I saw, like, I saw somewhere that she gives like historical tours and I'm like, yeah, she seems like she would be capable of giving historical tours because she did a lot of research to write this book. Um, so I admire that when other writers do it, I don't think I have really the patience and right. nor the interest really in, in representing reality that closely. Um, I think for me with the vanishing half, I felt like I was writing toward myth more than I was really writing toward history. So that became more important to me to kind of think about, I don't know, the emotional reality of it versus the sort of historical, you know, truth. Right, right. Do you, do people ever come to you and, and say like, oh, that's not, that would never happen or like, that's not real? Or do people kind of understand what you're doing? Sometimes. And I think it was um, my friend, Angela Flournoy, who referred to this as like, well, actually readers. Yes. Um, because I'm not that type of a reader myself. So I, I, it's hard for me. Like there'll be times I'll be reading something that doesn't seem right, but I don't get really hung up on it. Cause I know that fiction is fake. Right. So, so when there are readers that will email you because, you know, on this page you said da da da, but in this year, this was da da da. There are some readers that are like that. Um, and you know, I don't mean to be completely disparaging about it. I just, I'm not that type of reader. My right. mind doesn't work in that way. So so sometimes you do have people pop up like that. I haven't had too much of that yet, but I'm I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, well, actually, podcast listeners also. <laughs> I actually just got an email the other day from a relative of someone who was a character or a person in a book that we did on the show being like, <laughs> you should be more concerned about the truth of this if you're a journalist. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you call me a journalist. <laughs> I was like so excited to be referred to as a journalist because that's like my dream, even though I have zero interest in actually being one. But I just think it's like the coolest job. So I got hung up on on that fake compliment. She was basically telling me I was a shitty journalist, but I just heard journalist and was like, this is the best day of my life. But there's well, actually, I think well, actually people everywhere for sure. I, yes, I think that's true. 
I wanted to tell you guys today about a fantastic new book called Saving Ruby King by Catherine Adele West. I am so excited to check out this book. It's an enthralling story set on the south side of Chicago about a young woman determined to protect her best friend and a deadly secret that threatens to undermine both of their families. It's perfect for fans of today's guest, Britt Bennett. Saving Ruby King is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. It was named one of the most anticipated books of 2020 by USA Today, Book Riot, Pure Wow, and Parade. The premise of the book is that when Ruby's mother is found murdered in her home in Chicago's South Side, the police dismiss it as another act of violence in a black neighborhood. But for Ruby, it's a devastating loss that leaves her on her own with her violent father. Her best friend Layla is the only one who understands how this puts Ruby in jeopardy. In a relentless quest to save Ruby, Layla uncovers the murky loyalties and dangerous secrets that have bound their families together for generations. Only by facing this legacy of trauma head on will Ruby be able to break free. The book sounds incredible. So go ahead and get your copy wherever books are sold. Okay, wait, I have, we have to talk about this. Your book came out in the hottest moment of everything has, everything in the world is coming together around everything except for people wanting to publicize their books. So I kind of want to know, so your book came out on June 2nd, The Vanishing Half, which for people who don't remember what was happening on June 2nd, I'll give you a little reframe. Um, It was right after uh, the Memorial Day murder of George Floyd. It was during the pandemic. It was, the protests were going crazy. June 2nd was actually the blackout day on Instagram where people were posting those black squares. Um, It was just a really crazy week, very emotional, a lot going on. You're obviously a black woman. You've written this incredible work of fiction. It's coming out on a day where people are basically either not posting on social media or pretending like they're not on social media kind of a day. Um, and it's already in the middle of a pandemic. So you're not going on your book tour. Like there's just so much going on. So I'm curious what that was like for you, because this is such a huge day for you as an author. And at that time, you didn't know that your book was going to be a number one bestseller. Like you didn't know how everything was going to play out. So can you kind of take us back to those, (laughs) take us back to those moments, says the journalist. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it was, I, I just remember I knew that that morning I knew that um, the book was going to be announced as part of the Good Morning America book club and that there was going to be, they were going to show the book on the Jumbotron at Times Square. Mm. So I remember like kind of the days leading up to it. Um, I was talking to my agent, Julia and my best friend, Brian, like, Hey, are we going to go down to Times Square and see the billboard? Like that would be a cool thing to do. Uh, but I remember that morning waking up and just looking at my timeline and just seeing you know, all of the uprisings, seeing the, you know, destruction, seeing um, just the emotion that everybody was feeling and, and how grotesque the idea of going to Times Square to see my, my book on a bill. So I didn't end up going. I was just mm. like, no, it feels gross. I don't want to do it. And, and then I saw, you know, the black squares and everything. So then the idea of even being like, hey, I have a book out felt really gross um, sort of do, to do that in that moment. Um, so I just remember, I think I sent out like a tweet or something. And then, uh, my friend, Y2 Moore, whose book also came out the same day as mine, we just happened to have the, the same pub day. We live in the same neighborhood. So we went on like a little, a distant walk with her dog. Um, and I just walked, like sat away from my phone while we were talking in the park. And I just remember then returning to my phone and then seeing that the, the, 
mood halfway through the day had somehow shifted from we are only posting black squares to we should be uplifting the voices of black people. And I don't know what made that shift happen, but somehow that shift happened and it felt like then the conversation kind of moved into the next phase of things, which became the anti-racist reading list, which I sort of ended up being kind of swept up in because of the timing of the book. So all of those things combined in the strangest way of, you know, realizing I knew earlier that I was not going to be touring because of the pandemic. So I'd kind of wrap my mind around that, I think. But the fact that the book was emerging at this time in which self-promotion felt really gross, but also in which people suddenly turned to books as some type of a of sort of response in that moment, there was no way I could have predicted that both of those things would happen and happen like one after the other. Um, so it was all surreal and strange and... Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was just strange, but I was glad for Y2 that I had somebody else that I was talking to about, this is weird. Isn't this weird? <laughs> and having just that moment of somebody who just, you know, we, we became friends when I moved to New York and she lives a few blocks down from me. So it was just truly, um, I felt truly fortunate to have a friend to turn to, um, who was experiencing the same strangeness of the moment. Yeah, that was such a wild day. I I'm in California. So I remember waking up and seeing all the squares and being like, this doesn't feel great to me. Like I'm super not wild about this and being like, maybe we should be doing something different. You know, maybe we, and I do remember that shift of all of a sudden it was like, Oh, it's actually, I I had to like look in the mirror and be like, yes, I am a black woman. I could be (laughs) uplifting my own voice right now. Like I could be promoting something. I could be shouting out other black people like, and taking that moment and being like, this is a time to be, to not fall back. You know, like it felt like we were being told that we were supposed to fall back. And then, I don't know where, who, who, someone I think met, DM'd me and was like, what do you think about the black square? And I was like, I haven't really thought about it. And then I was like, I think I hate it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it was like, it's like, I don't think this pertains to me. Like, I'm not ready to be quiet in yeah. the middle of all that's going on. I, yeah, I, I also felt ambivalent. I, I, I appreciated the gesture as some, there needs to be some sort of moment, like some way to rise and acknowledge the moment um, in some way. But there was also, to me, there was a weird conflation of blackness with silence or blackness with absence that I also reject, you know? Yeah. So, so, and, and, and that is to be fair, like, yeah, I, I had a personal interest as somebody whose book was coming out that day. Um, so, you know, I acknowledge that, but I also felt like, like when people were starting to say that those black squares were like drowning out actual information about the protest, that felt like such a, it felt like such a heavy handed metaphor almost for right for the kind of performative allyship that we sometimes see on the internet where it's, it's about sort of acknowledging that you're an ally at the, at risk of actually harming the people that you were supposedly advocating for or, or sort of, yeah, interfering in some way with, with actual advocacy. So I appreciate that people were trying to do something that they thought was good, but I was glad that, that, you know, to see, I think what's been exciting about this moment is to see, um, you know, people giving to mutual aid funds, people giving to bail funds, like people doing these things that are active and not just about sort of signaling allyship. Yeah, I agree. I feel like the call to to put your money where your Instagram posts are and to get involved in different ways has been really refreshing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not sh- I don't think any of us are sure what this moment will yeah 
will lead to. But I do think at least there has been tangible exchange of money. You know, like yeah. at least there are organizations that are benefiting from people's apparently newfound understanding of the idea that racism exists, which yes. I still am like, you guys just like, you really just learned that racism exists in America in 2020. Like, yeah. it's the cra- it's the craziest conversation to be having because I just, I can't believe it. I'm like, I, this can't be a good faith conversation. Like, I feel like some of you guys are fucking with me that you really <laughs> just found out that racism existed. Like, in May of 2020. Yeah. Well, I don't believe that. That's the thing. Right. Like, I, I think that there is, I would, my, my feeling of it was you either want to convince us that you are this stupid or you are that innocent. And I think you're right. neither. I think nobody is neither completely stupid that you don't have any type of intellectual awareness. And I don't believe that you're so innocent that you have been sort of shielded from from the realities of race that have been happening around us for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, so I think that, that that is, I think, the thing that, that frustrates me about, about these conversations. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to just sort of admit that you have been um, that you have been sort of ignoring what's happening around you and now you're paying attention. I'm like right. fine with that. But right. but don't act as if this is something that's new to you because again, it's not even new within this, you know, the past five years. Right. Um, it's not a new conversation within the, the past few years, um, let alone within the history of this country or the history within of the world. So so I, I do I do take issue with that. I find that pretty insulting to ask um, to ask black people to sort of accept that you were so innocent that you just had no idea about race. Right. Right. Like I get so many messages of people being like, oh, I'm just now learning. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like I can't, yeah. I mean, I could do seven podcasts on the yeah. idea of quote unquote learning. Like I, it's my new least favorite word in the yeah. history of the world. Like ugh. anyways, but I do want to talk more about, about your work. I don't <laughs> sure. want to just like vent about learning. So the mothers is very contemporary. The Vanishing Half is period historical fiction, I guess. Do you, would you consider it that? Sure. Sure. I don't know how that is defined. I'm like anything yeah. that wasn't written like yesterday about yesterday, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But was that something like that you were interested in doing or was it just the story or is like, is that something you think about? Like I want to do something in a totally different time frame, or was it just like, this is feels like the right moment to do this kind of story? Yeah. I mean, I do think it, it felt like the right moment for that story because I mean, part of it was again, the origins of it. My mom was growing up in Louisiana during Jim Crow. So there was this, uh, this sort of time period. And, and obviously also just like logistically stories about missing people, all of that is more interesting in a pre Google era, sure. um, yeah. <laughs> the pre Facebook time. So, um, so it, it was, I felt like it was rooted in that space, but I know for, I actually had a lot of ambivalence about writing something that was historical, mm. um, because I felt almost as if that was, I think there's a way in which sometimes that's considered, I don't know, maybe this is, just me, but I think sometimes people consider that those types of books to be more prestigious or to be, hmm. um, to be more, I don't know, to have sort of heavier stakes with kind of the sure. weight of history, um, than the mothers, which is really about a bunch of like messy teens and like messy 20 year olds in the contemporary, you know? So there's a way in which part of me felt like as a young writer, am I kind of like turning away from, uh, just the contemporary moment in which I could be writing about what it's like to be live now um, and, and looking back towards this past where you have the benefit that, you know, the book opens in 1968 and there is a historical meaning to what 1968 is as a year, right? That's, right. that's different than maybe writing about some other sort of more contemporary time. So anyways, there was a way in which I, I, I actually kind of wondered about that as I was, as I was going into it, but 
I did want to do something that was going to be very different. And I liked the idea right. of, of writing something set in a different time and a place and a different place. And also something that have a larger scope because the mothers is a coming of age story and it's pretty chronological and it's basically 10 years of time and it's tight in that way. Um, and this book became a much more kind of sprawling uh, story about a lot of different people throughout a much larger amount of time. Yeah. So there's one other part of the book that I want to talk about before we kind of leave the book. And it's you have this great uh, queer love story in, in this book. And I'm curious why or if there if if that was important for you to put in and if it was important to do that, why you felt it was important and also kind of how kind of how that came to be for you. Like why why put that love story in? Why add that layer um, to your story? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it really was very simply like I wanted to write a love story for this character. Um, and I wanted to write a, a sort of a big sweeping love story. I think, you know, I think about the love stories in the mothers um, and, you know, the relationships in that book are quite toxic. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so I mm-hmm, wanted mm-hmm. to do something different. I wanted to write a love story that felt uh, that did not feel toxic for once. I wanted to write something that felt really good and, and felt like it was a healthy relationship. So I think that was really kind of the broadest way that, that I came to writing this love story. Um, but I also just think, you know, as, as, as a writer, I don't want to only write about straight people. Um, I, I just, uh, I, I don't know. I've never thought about why that is. I just think that it's, it's unrealistic and it's also boring. So yes, a thousand percent. Um, so, so, you know, so I, I, I think that, um, thinking about desire and the ways in which it manifests in lots of different ways, like that's, what's fun to write about as a writer. Um, so I think that that's one, but I think also writing about, um, this queer relationship, um, in the past, um, you know, I think that there can be a ways, ways in which, um, you know, people talk about sexuality as if there's like some newfangled, you know, iteration and it's generational and there's something in, in, which is stupid, you know, it's like sexuality has always been complicated and varied and diverse and gender has always been complicated and varied and diverse. Um, so I think representing, um, just sort of some of the diversity of that in a different time felt, felt, um, felt interesting in a way to speak to that in a way to speak to the thematics of the book. So it did require, um, research as far as, um, thinking about what that experience would be like at that time. Uh, is writing about an experience outside of your own and also in a time in which you were not alive. So there's that element of it. Um, and so, you know, there were, I read some memoirs to, to, to try to get a sense of, of what this character's experience might be like. Um, I, I had, um, a friend who's trans read the book, um, who's a scholar of trans literature and also history. So I was like, mm. I need, I need all of your skill sets. I need your whole brain. Please. Yeah. I was like, I need all your skill sets. And he was so generous and, and really helpful, um, of just helping me. Like, he's like, okay, this is what's happening in this time period this is what you need to know. Um, so, so I was trying to kind of marshal, um, a lot of, uh, people that I knew and, and resources that were available to try to represent this experience in this time um, and in this place in which that, that, that storyline sets, which is also particular. Um, but, but I think, you know, I'm, to answer your question, I just, I think, yeah, people, to me, I'm always wanting to write about different types of people and, and, and the sort of variety and the diversity within our lives and, and within our communities. And, and to write that love story, I think of that love story as being really at the center of the book. Um, I think it's the, the love story at the heart of the book. And I think, 
more than anything, it was fun for me to write a love story that felt good, that felt healthy and that felt like people were respecting each other and, and taking care of each other and, and trusting each other and all of those things. Um, it felt, uh, that felt really good for me just as the writer to, to spend time in that relationship. Yeah. You're, you're so right. It is a sweeping love story. It feels really healthy. It feels so whole and just like mutual in a beautiful way. And for people who are at home listening and they're like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> I'm so confused. We're purposefully being vague because I am having anxiety about spoiling anything in the book. So if you haven't read the book yet, we haven't spoiled anything. But if you have read the book, you know what we're talking about. And if you haven't read the book, what the hell are you doing? Go get the book. It's called The Vanishing Half. You're so annoying. I've been telling you guys to read it. Stop harassing me and read the book. <laughs> Um, the last thing we'll talk about the vanishing app because we absolutely have to is that it got picked up from a freaking like million people auction at <laughs> and HBO got it for a mini series. So I need to know, do you have a dream cast in mind? <laughs> I, I'm sure even if like, I don't even know if you're going to be writing it or what the deal is. But like if when you were writing the book, or now that you know, it's going to be turned into something who who would you cast? You know, I'm not writing it. Um... Okay. So I, I'm not involved in that way, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's really surreal and exciting that, that HBO was, um, was, that was where we landed for this project. Um, I don't have a dream cast in mind. I'm sorry to say, I know that people have been tagging me in some of their posts, um, which has been fun to to see what people are imagining. Um, I think that it, it will be, um, I'm hoping that we'll have a lot of people that are excited about being involved in it. Um, and, you know, I'm, ex- I'm excited to kind of see where, where we land with it. Right now, we're just discussing writers. So we're not even on that kind of uh, far, that feels so far away of thinking of actual actors in it. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just as excited and, and as everybody else and anticipating who we, who we end up working with for it. What about writers? Who, like, are, is there a showrunner or a type of per- like that type person that you would be so over the moon about? I don't, I don't know about that either, but I do think that, you know, all of the, the sort of writers and people that we're talking with are all black people. So I think it's going to be, yeah, I think it's going to be, um, you know, have a black writer on board and, and I'm, will be in the sort of role of executive producer. So I will be there in that. Um, and it's great just to have these conversations. Like I never, I never stipulated that, that I wanted to, you know, so it's it's exciting, I think, to see that um, hopefully these conversations um, around inclusivity are starting to become uh, people are starting to internalize it so that you don't have to explicitly say, hey, I want a black writer for this project. Um, it's right. great that those were the names that 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 HBO suggested and they are all people who are talented beyond measure. So that's really exciting. Um, so we'll see. I don't I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know who who's going to be starring. Yeah, we're still so early. Um, but I'm excited just thinking about it and kind of imagining, um, what it would look like on, on the screen. It's, it's very okay. crazy to think about. Okay. I have my own thoughts about this, but I'll ask you, I think I know your answer is going to be, but I'll ask anyways, do you have feelings about the twins being played by bare skin black women? What do you mean by feelings? Like, do you feel strongly that it should be, or would you be okay with a white person playing them? No, I I wouldn't. And, you know, it makes me think about um, Imitation of Life because, like, there's in the earliest version of Imitation of Life, the the white passing character is played by a black actress who was just so fair skinned. She played, and then in the later version, that the character is played by a white actress playing a black woman playing a white woman in the movie. So, (laughs) so no, I mean, we haven't we 
I that that thought actually never occurred to me that that a white actress could be cast for these characters. Um, no, I would I would want I would want to have a, a black actress play these these roles. Um, and I think again, it's exciting to to talk to people about it because there are a lot of a lot of black women I've talked to across every sort of um, color spectrum who's had really intense feelings about this book and and about these conversations of colorism and, and what they mean. Um, so it's, yeah, it's important for me that, that we have a, um, a, a black woman playing the twins. It's important for me that we have a trans person playing, uh, Reese. And it's, um, it's important for me that, that all of that, um, yeah, that we have all of that for the, for the adaptation. I was pretty sure you were going to say that, but I just thought it was worth asking because I feel like these conversations happen a lot in Hollywood where all yeah. of a sudden it's Halle Berry. You find out Halle Berry is up for a role as a trans man. And like, you know, this has been going on forever in Hollywood. Um, and when I was thinking about my dream cast, I was like, I can't think of anybody really off the top of my head to play either of the twins. And then I was like, that's, but that probably means that that actress is out there yeah. and I just don't, I, maybe I don't know that she's black or I also don't know yeah. like a lot of young actresses, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so yeah, we'll I see. mean, I think that's also a scary thing about giving over your work to be adapted because you don't know what's going to happen with who will be cast in it. Um, but I've been really, again, I've very early conversations with HBO, but I feel like we're on the same page about these things of, of casting this appropriately. And I also am really excited by the possibility of discovering somebody yes. yeah, that there could be some, you know, some, um, you, you know, young trans actor out there, or there could be a, a young, you know, really dark skin actor for Jude or a really light skin actor, whoever these people are. Uh, I believe that, you know, HBO will do a great job finding those actors. And it's exciting to think that, yeah, we could maybe discover somebody who will become, you know, a great sort of next generation, great talent. Oh my God. I am so excited. I can't <laughs> wait. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. 
okay, we do this little thing called Ask the Stacks where someone sent in a question. They're asking for book recommendations. So I'm going to read the question and then I'll say a few and then you'll say a few and or one or whatever you want. And people at home, if you want to participate in Asking the Stacks, all you have to do is send an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com with whatever you're kind of looking for in a book and then we'll do it on a future episode. So this one comes from Claire. She says, looking for something that's light, engaging, and going to feel like an escape from the real world and the pandemic. Any ideas? I put Anna Kay on the list after watching your Instagram chat with Jenny Lee, but I wanted a few other options. Um, so I'll go first. I'm terrible with escape things and light things. I only read heavy, dark stuff, except for I did read Anna Kay and it was great. Um, so this is as light as I go, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, one, I will say, and not just because I'm talking to Britt Bennett, but The Mothers by Britt Bennett kind of fits in that play- world to me. Um, it's about two girls growing up in San Diego. There's some obviously mama drama. Um, <laughs> there is some boy drama. There's some great writing. I don't want to give anything away as usual, but it's really good. Um, it's so good, in fact, that I actually invited Britt Bennett to be my guest on the podcast. So <laughs> there you go. Um, another book that surprised me that's not fiction, it's actually memoir, is Demi Moore's memoir, Inside Out, is so good. I listened to it on audiobook. It is so far from anything that I'm even interested in. I don't even think I've seen more than two movies she's ever been in. But the book is so great. It's juicy. She's not like whiny. She's not asking you to like love her. She's kind of just being like, I'm an idiot, but not in like a self-deprecating way. I don't know. It's really good. And then the other one that I'll say, which is not light at all, but moves fast and has a lot of characters and is really interesting and good is There There by Tommy Orange. Um, It's definitely an escape from this current moment, though it's not necessarily an escape from racism and inequality. Um, But it's about it's kind of a bunch of different characters whose stories intertwine. Um, They're all Native American in Oakland, California, and it is kind of revolving around this upcoming powwow. And there's a ton of characters. And if you read it, I took notes because I got some of the characters confused, but it's really, really good. He's an incredible writer. So those would be my suggestions. Britt, do you have one or two or any? Yeah, I'm like you. I don't have a lot of books that I that I feel are 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 light. <laughs> I, I everything I'm thinking about is has like turns very dark in the story. Um, and this is probably true of this book, but I do think that it is a book that is certainly um, an escape. And that's The Paying Guest by Sarah Waters. Um, I think that everything by Sarah Waters I find to be like whenever I'm I'm in kind of a reading rut, she just like jolts you out of it because all of her mm. books are so propulsive. Like there's just an energy to them. Um, she also writes stories that are mostly historical. Um, but the paying guess, it's just about this, um, woman and her mother. And I think uh, around the world war two, I want to say, um, and they just take in these borders, which is this married couple. And there are some entanglements we'll say, mm. um, in the lives of this married couple and the woman who, whose house it is. Um, it takes a lot of twists and turns. It gets very stressful parts of it. But it really is you're escaping into a different time and place. Um, and also just I, I keep being drawn weirdly to, to books that often take place in houses. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's that's at the forefront of my mind right now. But um, but also um, this is not light either. But I think about Bel Canto by Ann Patchett, mm. um, which I consider kind of a, a vacation read because it's a book that also takes place in a house. It's about a, a, a dinner party that is held hostage in a house. 
Um, so the book, it's like, you know, you have bottle episodes of TV where like, the whole episode takes place like in one place. That's really the novel. It's a bottle novel <laughs> that takes place in this house. Um, but at the same time, you feel like you were traveling. You feel like you were going through these varied lives. Um, you're being, you're meeting people who all speak all of these different languages and they all have to communicate through one translator. Um, it's really a, a magnificent novel. Um, and it's not light. Again, there's a hostage situation that is facilitated <laughs> it. So it's not exactly light, but, uh, but there is something really big and transportive about it. Um, I think about both of those books, even though they were both taking place in, in houses, um, they're both books that feel much larger and feel like they take you far outside of kind of the, the four walls where you're, where you're situated. I love that. Okay. Claire, if you read any of those books, let us know. Anyone else, email askingthestacks at gmail.com for what you're looking for. Okay, Britt, the moment we've all been waiting for, we're going to start going through the Stacks questionnaire and get, yeah. getting some of your book taste. So we always start, two books you love, one book you hate. Uh, uh, two books I love. Uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God um, and The Color Purple, I'll say. Uh, book I hate, I have to say, Heart of Darkness. I had to read that book so many times for school. Every time I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Just you just didn't like the writing, the story, just nothing I, about it. I didn't to you. like any of that. I felt like the payoff was not worth it. Like the whole mm. payoff of that book is like, what's going to happen when you find this guy? And then you get there and it's like, well, he's crazy. And and that just wasn't enough for me to sort of I hate justify that. it. You know, and, and again, I had to read it so many times. So I just I, I really hated that book. Okay, what about the last great book you read? Ooh. I think I kind of to say the great believers, uh, that book just destroyed me. I have never finished a book, like closed it and like sobbed. And I huh. really like, it wasn't just like, Oh, I have tears in my eyes. Like I had to close it and was like crying. Um, the mm. way that that book lands is so perfect. I think endings of novels are just impossible to get right. So yeah. I'm always drawn to people who know how to end a book <laughs> And the ending of that book was so perfect. Um, and it, it truly was like such a, such a like truly deep emotional experience that I cannot remember the last time I had that type of reaction to reading a book. Wow. I haven't read it, but now I, I have it and I keep putting it off. I, now you're making me want to pick it up. It's hard for me to recommend it because I'm like, it's going to destroy you. You know, it's hard for sure. me to be like, yeah, read this book that will wreck you emotionally, but it is really good. So if you're, okay. if you're in the headspace, I think it's worth reading We'll see. I can't focus on anything. So I don't, I have to wait. I keep putting things off that I really want to read because I just don't have the attention span right now. And, but we read Sula together for, for the end of the month and I did not have any difficulty focusing on that book, (laughs) which we won't talk about it right now. But I like, I was like, Oh, maybe I can read. Maybe it just has (laughs) to be really good. Um, okay. What about, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now I'm reading the new Isabel Yende book. Okay. Um, which I'm still in the very beginning of it. Um, and yeah, I love The House of Spirits, so I'm, I'm excited to be reading that book. And where do you kind of come up with your what you're going to read next? How do you pick a book? Well, that's tough. Um, sometimes recommendations from friends, sometimes what people are talking about on Twitter, social media, um, usually probably a combination between that. I don't really read reviews that much. Um, so usually just, I guess, word of mouth and, and friends. Do you read reviews of your own books? I do not. Um, I will read like I read like the New York Times one. Like I feel like the big ones you kind of have to read. Sure. But um, but no, I don't I don't like to look at them. I just think like 
however good you might feel at a good review is not better than how bad you will feel reading a bad review. <laughs> like it does, it's not equal. You right, know? right, so right, it's, right. It's just never really worth it for me. Um, you know, I, I, I don't find that constructive at all. Yeah, that's fair. Are there books that are coming out soon that you've read that you're interested in or that you're there or maybe not, sorry, not that you've read. Are there books that are coming out soon that you're looking forward to reading? I know that there are. Uh, my mind is going blank right now. Um, oh, well, I, I'm I, I'm excited for um, the Danielle Evans story collection that's coming out in this fall. Uh, the, the Church Ladies one is that the Secret Life no. of Church Ladies? No, no, not that. Although I am curious about that book. Uh, oh, the Danielle this, Evans. It's red, yeah, right? Yeah, the Office of Historical Corrections. I think that's what it's called. Okay. Um, I'm so bad at whenever there's like more than three words in a title, yes. my mind just goes blank. Um, but, but yeah, so I'm excited for her book and yeah, I don't know off the top of my head what I'm excited for, for the, for the um, next half of this year. What's a book that you like to recommend to other people? Um, I think my, my most popular recommendations are Silver Sparrow and Bel Canto. Uh, I, I've never recommended either of those books to somebody who's like hated them. So those are like my pretty, like, this is immersive. It's beautiful. It's compelling. You will like it. Books, books to recommend people. Are you the person in your circle of friends or family that everyone goes to for book recommendations? I think so. But I have like, I have my other people that I go to. Right. You know? So I'm like, I have my friend Maraid who, who's a former bookseller and she mm. is my person. And I'm like, what are you reading? And our, we don't always love the same book, but we always hate the same book. Got it. And sometimes that's also important guidance. I think when you're looking for what to read. Yes. I love to know if I'm going to hate something that is actually more important yes. because usually someone will love something for some, a bunch of reasons. But if I'm, if someone can tell me like, you're going to hate this, don't read it. It just is such a time saver. It just makes me feel really good. <laughs> I if, agree. if it's someone that I trust and who I know knows my taste. Do you set reading goals for yourself or goals around your reading? No, I don't. I don't do that for writing either. Um, I just, but I can and try my best. <laughs> do you read a lot? Like, are you a pretty voracious reader? I'm a slow reader. Me too. Um, so I've read, I've read more in quarantine than I probably like within, you know, I was reading like a couple books a week sort of before the book came out and before that this took over my life. Right. Um, I was reading like a faster clip than probably at any other point in my life. Um, so I'm usually always reading something, but often multiple things at one time and kind of plodding along. Right. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. I didn't ask it before, but I have to know because your book is a Riverhead book and Riverhead has the most beautiful books. Did you have any input at all in your cover? I did actually. Yeah. Um, they, they showed me, uh, I think we had four different versions mm. from the beginning. Um, so I, yeah, I think Riverhead, they have amazing covers. Um, and I trusted the art department um, from the beginning and they knocked it out of the park with the mothers too. So they, they did, we did weigh in a bit. Um, but this was one of the four versions that we started with. And this was the one that they felt most strongly about from the beginning is just being the most striking. Mm. And they were a hundred percent right. Um, it was like they, every sort of roundup that, that used like some type of cover image, this cover was in the sort of yeah. thumbnail. So I'm like, they're right. They know what, what is, what is eye catching. And, and, you know, so I was, I was happy to, to defer to their judgment on that. And I'm glad that we did. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I know it's kind of a, not part of this questionnaire, but I, anytime someone works with Riverhead, I'm always curious about the, the cover. Are there genres that you love or genres that you avoid? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't read a lot of science fiction. Okay. Um, I read, I don't know if this is considered science fiction. I read the book, the memory police. Oh yeah. Um, fairly recently. 
Um, and that was maybe as kind of sci-fi as I get. Mm. Uh, so although I'm like being, you know, one of the things that I was sort of marathoning during quarantine was Westworld. Mm. Um, so I've been thinking more about that as a genre than I normally do. Cause I don't even normally watch a lot of science fiction movies besides like arrival or something like that, which is, more, I guess, literary, right. <laughs> literary in and of itself. <laughs> right. um, so, so yeah. So I, I don't, I don't read a lot of science fiction. I'm not good with scary things. Me neither. So, so those kind of genres, I'm not great with. Um, but I think, yeah. I mean, I guess most of the books I read are sort of contemporary literary fiction. I love a coming of age story. Um, haven't, I don't read too much YA anymore. But I used to be really into YA. Yeah, those are probably most of the things that I kind of circle around. I have this question and I rarely ask it, but I'm looking at you and I'm seeing your bookshelves. So I want to know how you organize your bookshelves. And for people at home, they're very organized from the one I can see, but it looks like encyclopedias or something. They're like perfectly lined up. Okay. I have to say, I do not live here. Oh. So I am currently, so I'm in, I'm in San Diego right now. Um, I'm quarantining outside of my parents' house. I see. Um, so this is my dad's office. Okay. And that's, that is why it is, this is crazy. Is he a doctor? Uh, is he? He is a lawyer. Lawyer. As I say, so, those books look like. Yeah. I was like, what does she read? No, like in her living not, room. <laughs> that's not me. He has like this office outside in the yard, so I haven't been inside their house. So oh, I'm I see. Coming on like day ten or something, so I'm a couple days until I'm and I'm, I'm, can be back into circulation. But um, so yeah, so this is not representative of, of me. Um, honestly, I don't organize my bookshelves. Okay. I just whatever on there whatever um and my friend Marie, who's the bookseller that i mentioned earlier um has begged me to allow her to organize my bookshelves <laughs> and she's like please let me do it um but yeah i have no rhyme or reason to it the only thing i will say I did strategically um during when i realized i was going to do a virtual book tour was just having my friend's books on the outside of the bookshelf nice. so that you know their books are over my shoulder while i'm doing uh zoom events or whatever uh, so that was the only type of organization that i did but I don't, I don't alphabetize. I don't have like genre, nothing. I just stick it on there wherever. And then when I go to find something, it takes forever. It's not a good system. <laughs> Can you remember the last book you purchased? Uh, yes, I purchased uh, Mexican Gothic, mm. um, which not yet arrived. So I'm waiting for it. Um, but I'm really excited to read it. That's great. Okay. What's the last book that made you laugh? Ooh. That's sad that I'm like struggling to remember because of uh, how often I'm reading um, quite depressing books. Um, I think one of the last funny books that I read was um, Luster by Raven Leilani, mm. which comes out next month. Um, and that book does the like funny, sad thing mm. where it's kind of from one pole to another very quickly. Um, but there were some observations in that book about just sort of what it means to be a millennial, like alive at this moment, what it means to be swiping on Tinder, what it means to be like sort of this young person who has this terrible job trying to make it in New York, all of those things that felt so precise and familiar, um, that it did have me like laughing out loud and like taking like little like screenshots of the PDF <laughs> to send to my friends and be like, check this out. This is really funny. Um, so that's a book that it, it manages to be really moving in spite of the fact that it's very funny and as a person who finds it difficult to write something that's fun, like I think it's way easier to write something that's sad than something that's funny. Totally. Um, so I admire it a lot when other people can do this. What about the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? Uh, well, I like a lot of people. Um, recently, I read the book The End of Policing, mm. um, 
yeah, I think there's something kind of required for us in this moment of, of having, uh, expanding our imagination of what's possible. And I sure. think that that's a book, the book that does that, um, and, and kind of lays out for you, you know, sort of, you know, all of the things that are institutionally wrong with, with the way that policing is done and kind of allows you to imagine a different path. So that's something that definitely taught me a lot that I did not know um, about just sort of the history of policing in America and all the ways in which it's currently failing us. I love how you said expanding our imagination. That's such a great way to think about the ways that the government allocates money and the way like, it, <laughs> like, I don't know, it just it that just seems so right, because it it's normally presented in such like a bureaucratic way. And it, this is the way things go. And thinking about those systems, but the ways that we can expand our imaginations about how these things can work. I think that's really powerful. What's a book that you're embarrassed about never having read? <laughs> oh, a lot of things. <laughs> I don't, I mean, so many things. The first thing that came to mind is just, I, mean, I don't know if we were counting business books, but just like various Shakespeare plays. Mm. Like I feel like I have a very pedestrian knowledge of Shakespeare, um, most of which I, again, read in, like, high school and college. Sure. Um, so, like, you know, I read, like, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, you know, but beyond that, I truly have very passing familiarity with Shakespeare's plays. Um, so I think that's definitely some, some place where I think uh, my, my knowledge is lacking. Um, yeah, that's that's the first thing that came to mind. Just that's the good. canon of Shakespeare <laughs> outside of what you're forced to read when you're 16. I love that. I am a huge Shakespeare nerd. I went to theater school. And so I've been reading through all of the plays one a month since, since 2018. So I'm like a third or two thirds of the way done almost. And it's been really, some of them are so bad. (laughs) Some of them are amazing. And some of them are so bad that I'm like, of course, this is why I've never seen a production of, you know, love's labor's lost the world's most boring play. Um, (laughs) What about a problematic favorite? Like a book that you love that you know is like, if yeah. you know you should probably be dragged for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I will say I loved this book, but I do know a book that I read that I don't like to say too often that I read was Gone the Wind. That's uh, mine. I yeah, I think that that's that. I, I read that book when I was in middle school and it was actually perhaps, I guess, ironically, I read it sort of back to back with Roots because mm. those were both just really big books. You totally. know, so at the time I'm like 12, I'm like, these are long books. I'm going to read these two long books. So, and I, and I do think that it's, you know, it's, it's Gone with the Wind has become just like such a dog whistle now, right. of just like it's signaling something within the culture war and, and versus like actually engaging with the story. Um, so it's weird to talk about now because it has just become sort of, um, it is now basically like a Confederate flag. You know? yeah. So it's weird to talk about it. But I do remember like the the experience I had reading it, which is just like, you know, it, it was a book about a spoiled brat. Like, yeah. It was a book about a spoiled brat just like causing hell and, and, you know, sleeping with somebody else's man and doing what she wants. And there's a way in which that is just pleasing when to read about. A thousand percent. Uh, you know, like there's a way in which you just love reading about that type of a character who is an unlikable female protagonist um, who is just entitled and spoiled and terrible, but also like gets what she wants and just does whatever she wants to do. Um, So, so that is, I think that is the type of character that I am always drawn towards reading about and writing about. And I think that some of that is probably based in reading Comp the Wind as a child. Um, But obviously that is outside of the framework of, 
every other sort of uh, problem with that text and sure. the ways in which it um, engages or refuses to engage with, with, you know, the horrors of slavery and history and all of those things. But right. the idea of the protagonist being just like a bitch who goes after what she wants unapologetically, that's definitely like the basis of, you know, like Nadia Turner. Like that's like right. the basis of everything that I'm thinking about writing. And I think a lot of that was kind of planted and from, from reading that book as a young age. Maybe that's why I like your book so much. Cause you have like the, the little <laughs> scarlet factor, you know, yeah, love the scarlet factor. Scarlet. Yep. Always a little scarlet. Yeah. Okay. We only are going to do a few more cause we are running out of time, but who would you want to write the book of your life? Like a novel or I don't know. Like, a, like a biography. You could decide. This is open. <laughs> these a lot of these are very open ended. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't think of them as people who do biographical writing, but I think about like Margot Jefferson or Maggie Nelson mm. being my favorite. Uh, I think two of my favorite nonfiction writers. Um, and I think of them more as doing kind of criticism, <laughs> but but I think that Maggie Nelson is such a funny, also funny, sad voice mm. um, that that is really compelling in her ability. And both of them as critics who can like synthesize a lot of different things. So maybe that's the only way in which I could imagine someone writing about me as if I was like a part of a whole and there was some some larger, more interesting whole that an interesting person was synthesizing. So maybe the two of them kind of writing something, uh, something that that sort of has parts of me sprinkled in there. As you can see, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of, of being written about or writing about myself. So, <laughs> um, so maybe in, in that way, I could see them doing some type of larger piece of criticism that that involves me in some way. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. I would read that book. Um, okay, we'll do this last one. We always do this one. I stole it from the New York Times. You know as one does, if you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I'm just like, any book, please, just just any single book. <laughs> prove that you can read. Uh, yeah, prove that you can read. I guess I would say Beloved. Sure. Um, I don't think, like, to me, Trump is, you know, there's that scene in Beloved where when Seth, Setha is, is killing um, Beloved and there's those white boys watching and they're just like, mm. why did she do that? Like, why did she do that? She didn't have to do that. Like, that is definitely Trump's perspective of that book. You know, that sure. is where he is. That's where he is positioned. Sure. I don't think that it would change him. I don't think it would expand his mind view. But that's just like, that's the book I think every American should read. Um, you know, as far as is the way that that book, um, that book kind of directly is writing towards history and right. sort of amnesia of this country and history and all these things. Um, so I would say that book because I think it's the book everyone should read, but I also do not have high hopes that um, it would actually move or, or change or sort of expand the, the mind of this president. It's a hard book. That like is, hard book. We did an episode on it with Damaris B. Hill, the poet and, and professor. And I was like, I felt like I was back in school because she just like, broke it down in the most incredible way. I'm just so in love with the way that she talked about the book, but I feel like she, Trump would have to then listen to the episode too to like, yeah, it was like, it was like, so I you're mean, an idiot. Yeah. yeah. I still have to go back. A few times. Yeah. Like every, I mean, I can't even imagine trying to have that conversation with him about, you <laughs> no, I can't. I don't want to imagine it. Yeah. Me wanna, neither. I, I would think about it, but oh my yeah, God. And he'd be like tweeting about it. <laughs> Like, like I tell you, these African Americans, you're like, okay, pal, take it down a notch. 
like yeah, so many really misspellings. He'd be calling yeah. Setha like Seth or like. <laughs> <laughs> it's really depressing to think about. Okay, we'll leave that there. Um, Britt is going to be back with us on August 26th. We're discussing Sula by the aforementioned Toni Morrison. We will be spoiling the shit out of that book. So if you haven't read it yet, you have exactly four Wednesdays from this current Wednesday to read the book, get your thoughts together, and come back and listen to us have that conversation. Um, Until then, you also have other homework assignments, which are Read the Mothers and The Vanishing Half, also by Britt Bennett. Um, Britt, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Britt for being my guest. I'd also like to give a quick thank you to Claire McGinnis for making this episode possible. Be sure to come back again on August 26th when Britt joins us again for the Stacks Book Club conversation of Sula by Toni Morrison. Find everything we discussed today on the show in the link in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and support this show, head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you're getting your podcasts, and if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. Our theme music is from Tagiragis. Will Sterling is our producer and sound editor, and The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>